This is uh, Paul Vachor with uh, Terence Deacon, who in the school was presenting this view, what, which is sometimes called Evo Devo, with respect to our understanding of, of the brain and behavior. So, so what does Evo Devo actually really entail? What does this mean? It has different meanings, of course, uh, for different people. But the main idea is that development uh, constrains the pathways that evolution can take. Uh, for the simple reason that the evolution of species is a, an evolution of changes in developmental programs. Uh, it's not a, a, not a change of adults, it's a change in the way you build bodies and the way that bodies interact. And so if development limits the way things can be built or biases the way things can be built or if there's only a few ways that things can be built, um, uh, then what that will limit and influence the course of evolution. And so it's changed recently because uh, much more about the genetic control of development is now known. And how particularly various kinds of form and repetition of form gets generated uh, in terms of genetics has changed the field a great deal so that we can now not just talk about embryogenesis but molecular embryogenesis. But this, can't you, couldn't you then argue that this gives us, let's say, more insight in the, the specific implementation of, of evolutionary processes, but it's not changing the general concept, or does it really change the general concept? No, I think you're right. It doesn't, in, in one sense, Darwin's argument, um, as I would like to describe it, is um, almost completely agnostic about how things are produced how variations produce, how forms are produced, or even how organisms are reproduced. Uh, and because it doesn't depend upon any particular way that you build an organism, um, it is acceptable when we find new ways that organisms are produced, when, when it was discovered that genes, for example, played a role in transmission of traits in the beginning of the 20th century, it became a new field, but it didn't change Darwin's insight. When we discovered that the nature of the gene was a molecule in the early 1950s, it changed the way we understand how the process worked, but it didn't change the concept of natural selection. And similarly, now that we understand uh, much more about how genes produce body parts, and functions. It still doesn't change natural selection, but it provides us lots of additional information about the mechanisms uh, that are, in a sense, exposed to the pressures of natural selection. Okay. But to introduce that, that aspect, also of development, you emphasize quite a bit this notion of self-organization and self-organizing systems. So, so why is that relevant for this discussion? So it's, it's relevant because the crucial problem in life uh, is the second law of thermodynamics. That is, organized systems, unless they're frozen in time, uh, will tend to degrade spontaneously. Uh, if what needs to happen is you need to maintain structure and maintain particularly dynamic processes uh, within constrained limits, there needs to be some way of generating those constraints, generating those forms. And what we do know is that self-organizing processes are the only ways that forms are generated with thermodynamic input. That means that you need to continually put inform in, in, not information, put energy and materials into a process to continually perturb it, but if you do so in a regular way, it will produce regularities and maintain them. And so a number of people, really since the 1950s, have focused more and more on the role of various kinds of self-organizing systems. Now the problem is that when you get a very complex organism, uh, you get both sides of that. You get both things that become structured a little bit like they're frozen that they become, in a sense, the foundation upon which you can build further processes to produce further forms, which then can be fixed in place and where you can build f further forms. And in effect, a lot of complex organisms depend upon these many stages of differentiating a platform in some ways and then building upon it. So that when genes of animal bodies divide them into segments, those segments are in a sense, small modules that can work within themselves. Within those segments, there are subsequent 
processes that divide those segments into compartments, and now they can work within themselves. But in each case, the original process has a self-organizing feature. And then once it's stable, it can now become the basis for other kinds of okay. interactions. So, so, so clearly, clearly you, you have really thought about this a lot, but in some sense, if we would sort of backtrack, if, if we talk about the construction of form in the face of the second law of thermodynamics, in some sense, I, th I think you're talking about a very specific way of creating form, because surely I can, I can take some Lego bricks and construct a form and say, here, you see, I've constructed the form without having to worry about self-organization. But, but obviously, you, you're limiting this to a process of the structuring of form using microscopic elements that themselves are, if you want, also the substrate exposed to the second law of thermodynamics. That's right. So, so, so what's so special about that, that process of construction that it should worry about this, this, this generation of disorder? And why is then self-organization the solution? Oh, so in, in one sense, it follows from Darwin's original insights. And what Darwin was recognizing was that you need form, you need differences and variations of form in order to have natural selection work, in order to choose some of them that are consistent with their environments and others that are not. Uh, Darwin's whole purpose in developing this theory was to some extent to escape teleological arguments, purposeful arguments in which the end was prefigured somehow. Now, when I as a person modify my world with respect to some desired end, um, I can produce form because of that. Because of this, in a sense, I have a representation of a future form and I need to produce it. The problem with life, of course, is that it doesn't have this kind of forethought uh, until we have animals with brains. Now, as soon as we have animals with brains, everything changes. But before that, and in building animals with brains, you need to do it without forethought. You need to do it, in a sense, post hoc, after the fact. The fittedness of a form has to be produced after the fact, by selection. That means the form is produced irrespective of its consequence initially, and is only preserved because it produces that consequence. So how should I think then about, about the development of, for instance, the brain? from that perspective of self-organization. What, what does this mean concretely? So, interestingly enough, if you think about the logic in which you need to build form, and then you need to select that forms, some forms, with respect to how they fit in their environment. One of the things that happens with brains is that the early stages of brain development in all vertebrates is very, very similar. The way that cell groups are produced, the way that the different, you might call them even segments of the brain are produced. It's a tube that simply gets divided into segments, and then those segments differentiate. That's very consistent across most vertebrates. In mammals and birds particularly, we have this phase later on in which uh, within these segments, there begins to be, once you've organized it into parts that have particular forms, and that's a very generic feature so that you can actually look at the brains of most vertebrates at an early stage in their development and cannot tell them apart easily. Uh, it's only later that they become partitioned into components. But now you have exactly the same problem. You can produce lots of forms with a sort of generic form production system, which is very, very primitive. And then later on, as signals come in from the periphery, from your sense organs, or when there's re interaction between muscular systems and sensory systems in the nervous system. Signals now passing through the nervous system actually play a secondary role in selecting which of those circuits, which of those forms persist. But again, like this, the theory of evolution itself, you need to produce a variety of forms and regularities and then put them in competition with each other in the context of an environment. And that seems to be crucial for the brain. One of the ways that we were able to identify that was using transplants across species. One of the reasons I went into this work was to find out how different different species were in terms of how their circuits were built. And by using tissue from one species in another species, transplanting it into another species' brain, and watching how it grows into that brain, uh, we could begin to see if there was many differences in the way the axons, the output branches, found their targets. 
um, or whether there were similarities. And what we found was there were remarkable similarities, similarities that were much stronger than we ever expected between species that were quite different. They're all species of mammals. I suspect that if we could have done this across birds and mammals, or even into reptiles, that we would have found very conserved features. Can you give an example of these conserved features? Well, so, for example, we were able to show that you can take cortical cells and put them just about anywhere in the brain, uh, and their axons will grow out to only the appropriate targets for cortical cells, but not targets in the brain that are not cortical. Uh, but later on, we wouldn't find function until the competition had eliminated some of these connections. So there was a, an initial sort of what I would call generic phase in which the cells found any and all targets that were appropriate for cortex. But then some of those got eliminated and got cut, cut back, in effect, by function. We found this particularly in the, we used cells from the midbrain, which are dopaminergic cells. But in taking those cells from our donors, we couldn't separate them from other cells of the midbrain, which are not carrying dopamine. Now, dopamine is crucial for the function of most motor behaviors, particularly uh, associated with a disease called Parkinsonism. And we produced animals that had Parkinsonism. And our attempt was to repair the damage uh, by putting cells from another animal back in that produced this dopamine, this neurotransmitter, that controlled that. Interestingly enough, we were putting two kinds of cells in, dopamine cells and other cells as well, because we couldn't separate them out. And what we found is that the dopamine cells found their appropriate targets and over time began to alleviate the Parkinson effects in our donor animals, our host animals. The other cells project, sent their axons, even though they're placed in the same place, they sent their outputs to entirely different places, a place called the thalamus, and um, made connections there and also influence the thalamic functions. So that even though the cells were put in the wrong place, in fact in an adult animal, not a baby animal, um, the output branches made their connections, but their function took time. So that although they made connections and although the connections became useful, that is they became active synapses in which neurotransmitters were crossing between the, the different neurons of different species. So we could, for example, see a pig pre-synaptic axon attached to a rat post-synaptic button uh, and functioning appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happened in this, in this case is that the synapses were formed, but we did not see function immediately. But as some synapses were eliminated and the system was sculpted in effect by having signals pass through it, the anim animals gradually improved their function. Uh, they never were perfect, but they improved their functions, suggesting that over time it took two processes. It took making connections, and then it took a process of shaping those connections, probably for functional optimization in some way. But in humans, this never really worked. It, it, it worked partially. So there was a transplantation. First, first of all, there have been transplantations from human fetal tissue into adult Parkinson's patients. And they did alleviate, in many cases, some of the difficulties. The most severe cases were cases where it wasn't Parkinsonism, but actually a loss of function because of a drug overdose effect that actually damaged the system. We actually used it in our experiments to actually produce artificial Parkinsonism. Yeah, that's where the MPTP model MPTP, comes from. exactly. Um, so what we did in this process is that we um, created Parkinsonism and then re improved it. Uh, right. In humans, uh, we also tried to transplant not just from human fetuses, uh, which is a difficult thing to do for a variety of both you know, physical reasons, experimental reasons, but also for ethical reasons. There were lots of problems with it, particularly at the time we were doing this. Uh, so we began to test these cross-species transplants. The first thing we had to show was that it worked across species, so we used pigs as our donors and rats as our hosts initially. Showed that the connections were made and that there was improvement. We then used pigs and monkeys as recipients and showed that there was some effect in monkeys. We had some problem because the monkeys were rejecting the grafts in ways that the pigs, that the rats did not reject those grafts. It had already been shown that rat grafts in monkeys were not rejected, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that all pig tissue is rejected 
very quickly in humans. And we didn't know this when we first started the process. Uh, but during the process, we found that we were able to show that there was no secondary problem, no secondary damage, even if the graph completely failed, even right. if it completely died. So it was deemed reasonable to use this in what they called safety trials uh, to test clinically. And so there were 12 volunteers, all who had very advanced stage Parkinsonism. And they were transplanted with pig fetal dopamine cells. Actually, as they say, dopamine and a few other kinds of cells. Uh, the first two patients improved considerably. Uh, eventually rejected their grafts mm -hmm. and their improvement went down. In fact, the first patient was our very most successful case. He was transplanted. He had lived much of his life in the past five years before this almost completely immobile. He would have these periods of mobility. He was on dopamine, I mean dopamine replacement, L-dopa. Yeah, right. um, but it turns out that in advanced stages, you, the L-dopa produces, when you're able to move, it produces lots of uncontrollable movement. Sure and then oscillates with periods of complete inability to move. Mm -hmm. So there's what we call an on and off stage. Uh, and at the stage that he was advanced, he was in much more time in the off stage than the on stage. And even when he was on, his movements were almost uncontrollable. But after the transplant, um, he had many more periods of time of on, and was not having any of these secondary movement problems. So much so that he decreased his L-DOPA levels mm -hmm. down considerably. And that also minimized these secondary effects. Right. So that in fact, he was actually doing better. This is a man, as I said, who was pretty much immobilized for about five years. Mm -hmm. He subsequently painted his fence um, and he had played golf as a younger man and was practicing a golf swing. And I have a wonderful picture of him after the transplant swinging mm -hmm. a golf club, hitting a golf ball. Not very well, but, but this is something that would have been completely impossible before right. this. But now this, is, this works, uh, as far as I understood it, that you're saying there's, there's a scaffold within the nervous system that, that coordinates the, the, the outgrowth of yes. processes. Right? And this scaffold actually uh, maintains itself throughout the lifetime of the organism, and that's what, the, in, in these cases, actually being exploited by that's the right, fetal right. tissue. So how should I think exactly about well, that? Well, it, it was actually a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't know. One of the reasons we did this is we didn't know if they would find their targets. So early on, all the transplants we did were in the very target, the very same tissue that was the normal target. Uh, and it was only after we found by transplanting in different places that the axons did find their target, even in adult brains, which surprised us. It said, yes, these signaling molecules, guidance molecules, must be present. But here's the surprising thing. Adult forebrain, that is, this is anywhere in the central nervous system, after you mature, there are lots of molecules that appear that stop axons from growing. They literally block the growth of axons. Now, we don't know. There's, there are different ways that this can happen. It can happen because the axons, they actually have to pull themselves forward. And if they don't have anything they can hold on to, so to speak, they can't pull themselves forward. But there are also inhibitory molecules that send axons in the other direction or just keep them from going forward, cause these, these sort of finger-like growth features called growth cones um, to collapse. Uh, this is true in adult brains. And so when we transplanted fetal tissue into adult brains, the axons grew very, very much slower than they would have in a fetus or in a young organism. Right. Uh, so it took a long time to grow there. Mm -hmm. But by transplanting, and this is, we only did this, we're only able to find this by transplanting from pig brains, which are very large and take a long time to mature, into rat brains, which are small and take a short time to mature. The rat axons could not grow long enough to find their targets if they were placed far away. But pigs, because they took a long time to mature, those cells actually did find their target. And that proved to us that even though adult brains, for some reason, don't want axons to grow, nevertheless keep the information about how to find targets, even though, as far as we could tell, it's not useful for that purpose. However, I, so this is great, right? So here we have this nervous system, and as if throughout this nervous system, all sort of paths are being labeled with, with different kinds of yes. markers 
to still guide growth, even though, as you're saying now, the processes that, that should make use of this information stop to, to appear at some point in, in life. Right. But now, in, if you look at certain lesions to, to, to the brain, as in the case of stroke, then again, you might see this kind of, of sprouting of processes. Or uh, So do you see that as, as a reason why these markers are still there? Or do you really see this just a leftover of some developmental program and not well, to be used again in the future? Uh, that's a great question. First of all, we don't know for sure. Um, but I think there's also a third option, and the one that I like. Though I think it could well be a partial repair. The problem is after damage. And even though there are all kinds of uh, irritation and damage-related effects, it doesn't seem to eliminate these inhibitory molecules. They are there. And this is one of the reasons that stroke, there's minimal recovery after stroke or minimal recovery after spinal cord injury. Um, growing across the injured site is very difficult. Now, in the peripheral nervous system, that's not true. Well, for stroke, it's also not necessarily true, right? So after stroke, you have a rather dramatic, also spontaneous recovery. But, but then, of course, there's some ceiling effect there. Yes, right, right. And, and, and so what we find is that there is local growth, and there's, there's even some neurogenesis locally, as far as we can tell, but it's relatively short distance. The really important connections, of course, in the brain are crossing long distances. By long distances in the brain, I mean a few centimeters, but that's a very long distance for a tiny little cell. Right. Uh, and that kind of growth just simply doesn't happen. And so... In the attempt to find ways to help people recover from brain damage, one of the things that we've, we've been trying to do and many people have tried to do is to come up with ways to either aid the growth of axons by giving them uh, a new pathway to grow through. And one of the ways to do that is, for example, to implant a peripheral nerve into the brain because the peripheral nerves have a kind of a tube made up of myelin that the nerves can grow through. And so when you get damage to your periphery, you often can regrow your nerves as they find this pathway. And some people have shown that if you put in um, these kinds of extra cables, you can get some growth across a damaged site. But generally, it doesn't occur. Okay. Now, what I think is going on is that, first of all, I don't think it's just leftover. And I don't think it aids damage in the way we're thinking about it. But one of the things that happens is that locally, there is lots of movement. That is, when very short distances, within neuronal distances, neural cell body distances, there's lots of changes of axons and dendrites. Dendrites are reabsorbed, synapses are uh, pulled off, are dis dissociate in various ways, and move around. We now know that in learning, there can be lots of uh, movement and change in synaptic density, and uh, dendrites can increase the number of synapses on them, and so on and so forth. So we know that there is plasticity at this very local level. But to make those connections, there had to be target information. Mm -hmm. Now, the target information may be just local, but everywhere in the brain, it's going to be local. And so if that target information is everywhere there still, now used just simply to keep synapses in place, to say, look, if you break up, don't go wandering elsewhere. Stick around, because there's likely to be another option here. Right. Uh, so my sense is that it's actually playing a role in the plasticity and the learning capacity of brains. But now, is there, is there also a possibility that um, this has to do with, let's say, neurogenesis uh, in the adult brain? Because yes. You know, as you know, right, the textbook knowledge was like, well, it all stops uh, after a few months yes. uh, in, in, in humans. But there's more and more evidence that we still see neurogenesis also in adult brains. And is that maybe the reason why you still want to have these different uh, um, guidance cues around to make sure that these things embed themselves in surrounding tissues correctly? Is that a possible interpretation of this as well? It's, it's possible, but I'm less convinced of it for the following reason. That first of all, the most neurogenesis occurs... Um, in just a few places where we really see it extensively. So in a part called the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, we can actually see cells decline and then be replaced quite regularly. Uh, also in an area that lines the ventricles, these open spaces within the brain, um, there are, is an area, um, this subventricular zone, this in which you actually do find new cells being produced and extends out into the olfactory bulb, in fact. Um, as far as I know, there's very little migration out of those zones into long distances. 
And uh, for short-distance axon connections, uh, and the dentate gyrus, for example, are all short-distance connections. They don't go very long, long distance. These are granule cells, basically, and they only connect to the nearest pyramidal cells. Uh, those short distances probably are not going to be inhibited by these growth-inhibiting molecules. It's only the long-distance connections that are. Right, okay. Uh, so so the, I, think the, I think the issue is that mature brains don't want large-scale change but they want to allow and even make possible short distance change. So I kind of think about it as an asymptotic process, that early on long distance reorganization is possible. And as you mature, the, the, the length of distance in which plasticity can occur gets shorter and shorter until it becomes uh, within a few millimeters. Very good. But then how about, how about to link that again to this, to this earlier discussion about, let's say, the self-organization of development? Because in some sense, you could argue that this this more global organization of the body and the nervous system um, and its parts is in that sense not fully self-organizing. I mean, a lot of regulatory genes that really try to control and lay down very specific, oh, very specific aspects right. of, of body and brain and, and organs and so on. And so in, in, your, in the description you just gave, that would mean that these more global structures are also under more also genetic control to right. really create specific forms, if you want. Well, at the local level, you might then allow more of these self-organizing processes sort of to fill in the details. Would you, so would I would you accept that, reverse, I would actually reverse it. Okay. And here's how I would say it. First of all, a lot of the organization that homeotic genes produce is the result of self-organizing processes within genes. That is, these genes are in networks with respect to each other, turning each other on and off in interesting patterns. And it's the pattern of genes turning each other on and off that produces regularity, a basically a recursion kind of relationship that you could model, even in a neural net-like model. Uh, the subsequent level is in which cells in different regions now are producing diffusible processes produced by their genes, which are binding to the genome in neighboring genes, in neighboring cells, excuse me, that have diffused away, but the diffusion has pattern to it. And they then turn each other on and off, turn other cells on and off by turning their genes on and modifying their genes. But now here's the interesting thing about diffusionary processes. They overlap in complicated ways. There's not just one molecule diffusing from one site. There are dozens of molecules diffusing from different sites. And so a particular cell, in a sense, knows where it is by virtue of having genes that are responsive to the relative concentration of a few of these diffusible membrane, these diffusible proteins, uh, or diffuse, they're even smaller than proteins mostly. Um, and that then activates and inactivates different genes in those cells. That's a process that's also self-organizing. So, it so it's not fair to say that the genes are like control and everything else is self-organizing. That the genes are self-organizing amongst themselves produce cellular patterning that then produces diffusible relationships and cell migration relationships that self-organize. Mm -hmm. That they then set up a pattern. So in a sense, it's each time you set it, you're setting up a new platform. Um, the selection part actually is always after that. So for example, to, even to simple as building your fingers, one of the things that happens is there's a diffusion of, of these diffusible processes across the hand, which at early stages is just a sheet of tissue. Um, and at different points along this sheet, uh, there are interacting molecules that turn on and off certain genes. And one of the sets of genes that they turn off um, are genes that are called caspase genes and other genes. But what they do is that they cause cells to kill themselves, suicide kind of messages. And they tell the cells to stop reproducing and to, in fact, engage in a kind of suicide. Mm -hmm. And so the spaces between your fingers are actually generated by signals that are, in a sense, the result of these interacting diffusions. And the cells responding to those interacting diffusions. If you change the concentration, for example, of diffusion, you can, put, you can produce a hand with two thumbs, okay. one on each end. Mm -hmm. Um, what's happened is that it's not that the genes have said, build a thumb over here and a little finger over here. What they've said is that if you're in a particular position in this diffusion of space, um, act this way. So it's a very, it's a complicated combination. Yes, but the, this is interesting, right? Because this, this, this diffusion 
or um, the molecule that, that sets up these gradients, in some sense, is imposing a very strong constraint on a yes. self-organizing process. That's right. Okay. So, so it's not completely bottom-up self-organizing no, that's local right. interaction. There's a very strong top-down constraint now. So, in that sense, so, for example, the size of the tissue matters. Um, because diffusion, for example, can't go certain distances. It only works certain distances. And that's one of the interesting things about brains, in fact. Because brains and mammalian bodies and mammalian brains are re many orders of magnitude different in scale. Um, you, it's hard to imagine that the same diffusible process would generate a brain that's very big and a brain that's very small. Absolutely. That's, that's, that brings me then to, to the next issue that I really would like to inspect in a bit more detail. Because you, you you have spent quite some time on a more or less a comparative analysis of brains, and yes. what what I would like to know is is what's the common design, right? Because we could argue, look, from all of all possible brains that ever existed on this planet, there must be a common design. If there's no common design behind these, we're lost as scientists. No, no that's right. So yes. so so if there's anyone now, at least in this room, who would know what the common design is, it's you. So I would like to know what it is. Well. There's a, there's a couple of stages of commonality, of course. Um, when you have organisms that have to move and have to move in one direction, typically you have to have a head end and a tail end, and almost always you have bilateral symmetry. You have two sides to it. So you have left and right, front and back, top and bottom. Uh, those dimensions get set up very early uh, in life, and it's not just vertebrates like us, insects and worms. Um, all have this feature. And in fact, some organisms like sponges that don't have this feature when they're mature, when they're embryos, actually do have this feature. And they end up effectively digesting their nervous systems after they've stopped moving and they've found a place to set themselves up. But to move, you need to put sense organs towards the front where you're moving towards because you need to get information about something that's distant. You need to predict, basically. And I think one of the things that brains are about is predicting if you're moving, you have to predict what are the consequences of your movement. So it looks as though brains have been put up front for that reason. Now, it turns out that's a good position because up front is also where you want your mouth, where, you, where you're going to target food. And so you now have to have a bunch of organs to bring things into your digestive system. So there's lots of reasons to concentrate the nervous system up front if you're moving in one direction, if you have a head and a tail, so to speak. Right. Um, now, that's true for insects, it's true for worms, and it's true for vertebrates. Uh, and on top of this, you also you, you referred back to this, this, this fairly, um, let's say, classic idea of, of McLean about the tree on the brain. Yes, right. So, so is that where we actually would say, look, we have these three levels of the, like the, the, the reptilian brain yes. uh, mm -hmm. moving forward towards, let's say, the, 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 the simple vertebrate brain to, let's say, the human brain. Right. So, so there's a. The, is there any truth to that still? Is this, is this a useful heuristic to think about the brain? I, I think it's a useful heuristic only in a very vague functional sense. In terms of the anatomy and evolution of the brains, I think it's completely false. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and here's why. Um, when we look at uh, almost any fish brain, including jawless fish, uh, very primitive fish, um, all the major what we call encephalon regions are there. So the, the for, most forward part, the telencephalon, that in mammals like you and I, um, is quite enlarged and quite exaggerated compared to the rest, is there in all vertebrates. And even, in fact, in insects, there's corresponding structures. They're not doing the same thing. They're a very different kind of structure. But in fact, some of the same genes are involved in producing that further for, furthest forward most structure in the brain. So that the, the layout of genes from front to back is very similar. And the kinds of functions that are going front to back are very similar. So the, one of the, the most forward feature is in almost all brains, um, sensing chemicals, uh, which is the nose, basically. Uh, as far forward as you can. Behind that, you need, in part, I think about it because chemicals are one of those things that you can get a sense of from a very long distance because you get a gradient of concentration. And that can actually predict not only into the future where you're going, but actually what was there. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a wonderful predictive even into the past, you know, right. in a sense, retrodictive kind of capability. And so I like to think about the furthest forward parts of the brain as being the most predictive parts. Mm -hmm. And as you move back, they're more and more proximate to the body. So, for example, the next one back um, typically is vision. Vision can predict far 
things in far distance. Um, but as you move back from that, you get things that have to do with touch, whether it's the touch of sound, which is basically a modified touch system, um, or the touch of the surface of your body. Now it's very proximate. Uh, so that, in effect, you've got this sort of projection system out front. I think one of the reasons that there's so much similarity in brains of animals that have a brain and a front end uh, is precisely because of that, Pre precisely because of that need of movement. Now, what's interesting is that recently it's been discovered, now that we understand stand the genes that are generating, laying out that pattern in the first place, um, it's a very primitive pattern. So primitive that we, it's now possible that you can take the gene that's responsible for producing much of the forebrain in humans is called OTX2, is the name given to it. It was actually named for a homologous gene in the fly called orthodentical. Um, and the fly gene produces the dorsal part of the head, the front part of the head actually, um, and uh, much of the brain. Now it's not the gene that codes for the brain, it's what codes for the very front part. Um, in vertebrates like you and I, it also codes for the front part, which is turns out to be much of our forebrain. OTX2 and orthodentical are very similar to each other. So scientists, not in our group, but other scientists have, have eliminated the, OT, the orthodentical gene in flies so that the fly, if it develops, does not develop a normal head. It's lacking a big part of its brain. But the human gene, the human OTX2 gene, which is related to this gene, can be spliced back into the fly genome. And a fly can develop, and its forebrain will develop. It's not absolutely normal, but it's remarkably normal. And what that tells you, first of all, is that that gene is not about building our brain or a fly brain. It's about starting out. There's going to be a partition up here. Uh, and that tells you that, first of all, the gene is carrying information in context. In a sense, like a word, word can mean something very different in a different context. Well, this gene can mean something very different in a different context, but only in a context that's up in the front of the head. Right, exactly. Right. And so, so one of the things that's, that's been important about this is that we've discovered that that initial plan is very, very primitive because flies and humans carry a common ancestor that was probably nearly a half a billion years back in time. And that tells you that that conservatism has been around a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Now, I think okay. the reason it has is because so much else depends upon it. Mm -hmm. Once everything else depends upon it, like you've got, it's like the, the trunk of a tree, everything else depends upon it. And if you damage that or change it in any fundamental way, then lots of things will fail. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the reasons that these early stages are conserved is for exactly that reason. Right. And now tell me, so. Um, how would you call this principle? Would you still say like, okay, there's like the, uh, the front, the middle, and the back, and the front is more focused towards, let's say, the environment and predicting your your interaction with the environment. And the more we go to the back, the more we start to deal with, let's say, the body and, yes, and right. control of the body, and the bit in the middle interfaces between these two systems. Is this roughly a reasonable summary? It's of not that bad. Principle? And, and, and this is where the McLean idea is that is, you might say, an interesting intuition to get started. Because what he claims is that, of course, what he calls the reptilian brain is mostly involved in automatic behaviors and regulating the body. Um, the, what he called the paleomammalian brain um, is mostly involved in an interface between the ex exteroceptive senses and motor control systems and um, these automatic drive systems. So it's the system that he associated with arousal emotions. And emotion, if you think about the nature of emotion, it's sort of, I, I like to think about it as the accelerator and the brake pedal problem. That what you, even though you want to go fast and you're revving your motor, uh, sometimes you have to hold the brake uh, because conditions aren't quite right. right. Um, so uh, he, he basically considered the, what he called, he called it the limbic system. It turns out to be, almost entirely forebrain systems, telencephalic systems, uh, that are very far forward in the brain. His argument was, however, that in evolution, one was added on top of the other. We now know that all three of those layers in various forms were there in all vertebrates, even in the simplest ones we look at. What's 
Another similarity, however, is that as brains have gotten bigger, and particularly as we move to birds and mammals, um, there is a progressive enlargement of those more forward than those more behind. So that the, the teal encephalon enlarges much more rapidly than the rest of the brain. And this is true even going from small mammal brains to large mammal brains. That the proportion of the teal encephalon to the rest of the brain behind it, teal encephalon being the part most far, far forward, um, is more equivalent in, say, a mouse or a rat. Uh, but when you get to a human, um, it is completely overshadowing the rest of the brain. And so we see, when we look at the surface of a human brain, all we really see is telencephalon, and then at the back, the cerebellum. The cerebellum is probably the exception to this, because the cerebellum has also enlarged, but it's part way down the system. But that means the way you're describing it would suggest that it would be un maybe not, not reasonable to treat the, the, the components of this brain as independent modules. Because, because apparently, from the beginning, there's a plan that really tries to keep all these three structures together and also as a co-evolving system. Right. Right. So, so would you agree with that? Or do, do you believe that we can look at this nervous system from this more modular perspective and say, okay, let's just understand what this uh, cortical column does in isolation from its connections to subcortical structures and surrounding tissue and so on? So do you, do you believe in these kinds of modules? Or should we really think more about let's say, an integrated system that yeah. we cannot just decompose in those terms. Well, certainly I, I strongly am leaning towards the latter, a more holistic view of the brain. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize uh, that as brains develop, they become more modular. And even thinking about function, a skill ultimately becomes modular. That is, it becomes more unconscious, more automatic, more invariant over time as we develop the skill. So in one sense, there's functional modularity. That One of the things that brains are about is generating functional modularity to produce this, because when you have something that's extremely predictable, it's ideal if you don't have to think about it. It's ideal if you can run it off in its most optimal form. Uh, but, it, but it doesn't start out that way, usually. Right. Now, I think, in general, that's true about development of the brain. The brain develops in a, is relatively undifferentiated. And these so-called modules, modular parts, develop. So columns are a fairly late developing feature. The columns are something that are the result of axons coursing into the cortex and competing with each other and chasing each other out, so to speak, uh, from different sources uh, and creating this kind of sculpting into modules. So in that sense, the module is a consequence, not a cause, so to speak, of this process. Right. So... Um, now to, to sort of get get a bit to the to the conclusions of, of this discussion. So you, you you've been very deeply involved in, in, in this research. You have a deep understanding of the brain. Uh, we're trying to catch up, which which will take a lot of time. So what's this this one law of Terence Deacon you want us to adhere to in understanding mind and brain? The one law. Yeah. Um, only one. Only one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I have been quoted for a law. Some people even call it the right Deacon's people law. Or by the wrong people? Oh, by the right people. Oh, okay. um, uh, and it was called the displacement hypothesis. Now, it's not a law about brain function. It's a law about brain development. And the displacement hypothesis is based... It's a law, not a hypothesis. Oh, no, but it is a law. I okay, think it good. is a law. Okay. 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 Now, I, there are probably many laws. I'm not sure it's my favorite one. But this is the one that I'm known for, so I'll, I'll keep it going. Um, Displacement rule, if you want to think about it, is that uh, because connections in the brain um, in the final stages of development are competing with each other for space, competing for targets, uh, they compete on the basis of signals passing through them. We call it activity-dependent competition. Um, and what happens is that there's a standard rule, and it's not my rule, this is an old one, and it's a wonderful mnemonic that the neurons that fire together wire together. Um, it's not wrong, and it really dates back to the work of Donald Hebb, of course. Uh, but it turns out that size matters, because if you've got many axons coming into a target that fire together, they're going to have more control over that target than smaller numbers of axons. And so one of my arguments about the development of brains is that as brains have developed and evolved, 
one of the ways that they've changed function and biased their function one way or another is to cause more cells to be produced somewhere as opposed to somewhere else. And in doing that, um, you cause those that are enlarged to have a better chance of making connections to, in some place. And those that have been shrunk down will tend to lose their connections. And so instead of having specific information about where your wires should go, it's a, it allows the brain to send the wires many places and then let the competition decide. So a fairly simple process of just changing relative numbers, changing how much, how many cell divisions take place here and there, you actually can control the wiring of the brain. Right. So, so Deacon's law is size matters. Size matters. Cool. And the important thing about that is, of course, human brains are unusually large, mm -hmm. unusually large for our bodies, and we have parts of our brains that are unusually enlarged with respect to other parts. And what that means is that that's a clue about what makes our brains different than other brains. Mm -hmm. Very good. Then, then to finish up, um, if five years from now I'm going to go visit you and I'm going I'm to ask you, look, Terence, five years back you made this one prediction and today I'm going to check whether it came out. What is one prediction would really commit yourself to today? Hmm. My one prediction is not about the brain. That's fine. It's, it's about the origins of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have argued, and it's now a big part of my work, um, that the simplest reproductive molecular process uh, that reproduces itself and maintains the constraints to maintain its own structure and reproductive capacity is made up of two reciprocal self-organizing processes that, are, that happen all the time in living processes, not very often in non-living processes. One is called self-assembly. Um, it's a process by which molecules, for example, form the coats of viruses in which similar molecules, because they have a geometric relationship to each other, they tend to form polyhedrons or tubes spontaneously because they stick together edge to edge. They form containers spontaneously. The other process that's ubiquitous in the cell biology, the molecular biology of the cell, is what we call autocatalysis. Catalysts that have a circular relationship where one catalyst produces another, produces another, which produces the first, but that means it will amplify that process. It turns out if you mix those two processes together, each of them have demands that are required in order to work, and they produce form as a consequence. They produce a regularity as a consequence. And it turns out that the boundary conditions that allow each of them are produced by the other. So let me describe what I mean. And that is that the boundary conditions for autocatalysis, the crucial one, is having all the reciprocal catalysts that depend on each other have to be proximate to each other. They have to stay close together. But typically what will happen in a solution, of course, is they will diffuse away from each other. So autocatalytic processes in an open solution basically undermine themselves. But how, how do I make a testable prediction so that you can be wrong? So I'm, I, I, that's what I'm going to do here. Mm -hmm. So the, the second thing, if an autocatalytic process produces as a side product a molecule that self-assembles into a container, then that container will tend to grow where the autocatalysis is fastest. And become an amplifier. Well, it will, it will enclose, actually. So what will happen is it will tend to capture those catalysts. Now, catalysis will therefore stop. It will become non-dynamic um, because you'll run out of substrate. But now you have a complex, I call it an autocell, that has enclosed but it encloses the catalysts that are necessary to make it again if it's broken. So that if it's broken in any kind of environment, say heated up and it breaks open, what will happen is now the catalysts can begin to, to make more catalysts and make more shell molecules. They will tend to, shell will tend to form where there's the most catalysts. They will enclose it again and will now have a capacity to reproduce. So what I've argued is that, in fact, life doesn't start with DNA or RNA. It starts out as simple as this, and that this is something that we can produce in the laboratory. Now, we have not succeeded yet, but I think we can, and we've done so. We begin to approach it by simulations, trying to get more and more chemically accurate simulations mm -hmm. of this process. So five years from now, I can see this self-replicating autocatalytic process at work in the laboratory. In your lab, in and I think it will be very useful for nanotechnology mm -hmm. because it's 
the, the key feature to nanotechnology to make it work is self-replication. If you can get self-replication, now nanotechnology becomes very, very powerful and robust. Well, this is a system much simpler than a biological system, no DNA, no RNA, that replicates itself um, in a very simple way uh, and could be controlled. Interestingly enough, the process is also not chemically specific. Any molecules that can act as catalysts and any molecules that can act as self-assembling molecules um, are capable of doing that. That may not just be organic molecules. This is a general chemical process that I think is possibly capable in even mineral-like processes. I happen to think that the beginnings of this are the beginnings of life, even though this is not really alive. There's no, there's not, no constant metabolism here. There's no information molecules. But I think this is how life begins. Now, there's one extra step to this. To start this process, you need catalysts. And catalysts are typically molecules with large reactive surfaces. In the primitive Earth, any place where there's water, you tend to break big molecules up. They dissolve into smaller molecules. One of the problems with origins of life stories is that we, we don't really have ways that these molecules can be built up unless they get dried out on clay or something like that. Uh, I'm actually convinced that this process begins in the outer solar system. It begins with uh, molecules made up of hydrogen cyanide. It turns out that probably the most abundant large molecules in our solar system are hydrogen cyanide polymers, in which hydrogen cyanide is a carbon-nitrogen-hydrogen link. And it makes a polymer by getting rid of the hydrogen and linking another nitrogen to the carbon. The result is you get a, a, a polymer that is carbon, nitrogen, carbon, nitrogen, carbon, nitrogen, carbon, nitrogen. And it then can fold up and make it a complicated three-dimensional shape. It can only form in the absence of liquid water. But in the outer solar system, um, where water is all frozen, uh, it can form easily. And, and there are many people who now think that the dark bands on some of these planets are very rich hydrogen cyanide polymer zones. What's interesting about hydrogen cyanide polymers is that backbone I just described is the backbone of a protein. A protein has a backbone that's carbon, nitrogen, carbon, nitrogen, carbon, nitrogen, with side chains on it. It turns out when you put hydrogen cyanide polymer molecules, they're called polyamidines, in water, their side chains get eliminated and replaced by carbohydrates. And what results is peptides. That is, not amino acids first, but proteins first, but beginning from these molecules from, from the outer planets. So I, my view of the origins of life, and I think it's testable, because I think, first of all, we're going to be able to send probes out and identify the amount of hydrogen cyanide polymers that are out there. And second of all, we're going to be able to find, I think, some of these primitive forms that I just described, these what I call autocells. Um, I think we're going to find fossils of autocells on Mars. Uh, and I think so because the first place that they would have likely formed will have been on Mars early on when there was some liquid water on Mars. But it's closest to the outer planets where it's going to get a, a, a strong rain of these molecules. So I have a series of predictions about the origins of life that I think are going to turn out to be right. Very good. Terence Deacon, thank you very much for this conversation. I'll see you in five years. All right. <laughs>